the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. You, um, if you are a frequent television viewer, I do not count myself amongst those numbers, but for those of you that are, you might have been watching recently the uh, runaway smash hit early on a TV series called Under the Banner of Heaven. And uh, it, it's kind of a religious murder mystery. Is there such a thing as that? Um, and I won't take time here at the top of the conversation to go into uh, to mo- too much detail uh, because I want to get into our visit with our next guest, who is, in fact, a former member of the Mormon Church. She has written a number of best-selling books. In fact, she has more than 30 bestsellers to her credit. She also has a Ph.D. in biblical studies. Joins us now to discuss a, a book that is now retitled and re-released called Under the Banner of the Mormon Code. And we're pleased to have join us once again, Dr. Latane Scott. Dr. Scott, thanks so much for carving some time out of your schedule to be with us. Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you. Tell me first a, a bit sort of from your, your perspective, why the fascination with this? I mean, I, I, I suppose in the sense, I mean, obviously, uh, Americans, like a, a lot of Westerners, uh, love to get pulled into murder mysteries and uh, whodunit type stories and what have you. We have for, you know, going back to uh, the days of her Sherlock Holmes. This particular TV series, though, has a bit of a twist in that it is kind of against the setting of Mormonism, um, all of the, the primary protagonists in the, the story uh, or are Mormon or, or have uh, some involvement with the Mormon church. Why do you think that's attracting so much attention? Well, Under the Banner of Heaven was based on a best-selling book by John Krakauer, and he based his uh, narrative nonfiction on an incident that actually happened in the 1970s in Utah, where an offshoot of the Mormon Church, some, I guess we would call them Mormon extremists, um, had a woman that that kind of married into their clan, and it really was a family clan. And she didn't really toe the line on some things like having multiple wives um, and other things. And they ended up murdering her. And this is, I mean, this is a, a documented case uh, that actually happened. And Krakauer's book detailed that. But when Hulu made a series out of it, they put in it a couple of characters that weren't from real life, but who were, one of them was a faithful Mormon. 
And I think the thing that made the big difference, Craig, with with the listeners and the watchers of this this uh, Hulu series, was that they saw what happens to a faithful, you know, true blue Mormon when he begins to see that his past, his um, all of the things that he held most dear about Mormonism actually don't have reality and fact. In mm-hmm. other words, um, most of the history of the Mormon Church has been just made up or plastered over or prettied up, but it's actually quite a bloody uh, background. Or at times, as, as we've seen in uh, the history of probably the least, uh, certainly the last 100 plus something years, and that is when certain things come out that tend to be very inconvenient, then the history of the church gets rewritten and washed over, and and uh, the, the denial factory uh, kicks into high gear. Uh, beyond, obviously, some aspects, and I think, you know, for, for fairness and clarity's sake for our listeners, there are different branches of Mormonism. There's sort of the more traditional LDS, Utah, Mother Church brand of Mormonism, and then we have a lot of offshoots. I'm thinking of, for example, the the Warren Jeffs um, uh, offshoot that that really gets into the notion of multiple wives to a very significant degree and a very, very closed type of society where, on average, and correct me at any point, Dr. Scott, if I'm incorrect here, most LDS church Mormons, well, perhaps a lot of their social life might be amongst other Mormons and within their own family. They, they certainly don't eschew interaction with non-Mormons um, and in fact oftentimes are, are very very active in the community around them. Well, it's kind of a peculiar situation. When I was a, a very faithful Mormon at Brigham Young University, um, at that time, Brigham Young University was was for members of the main group that you just mentioned, and, and everything you said was accurate, by the way. Um, but also at BYU when I was there were several people from polygamist compounds in Mexico and in Arizona. Uh, young people that had been sent by their families to Brigham Young University because it was such a high quality of education. So this wasn't something really openly talked about, but, you know, I knew that uh, once you started talking to people about their background, and they weren't usually weren't very open about it, but you could finally figure out if they were from Mexico and they were from a particular community down there, they were from a polygamous branch of the Mormon church. And I think at last count, Craig, um, maybe 50 or 60 distinct movements have come out of the mainstream Mormon church. Mm. Now, uh, aside certainly from the polygamy, which of course tends to still, even in this day and an age when uh, when almost seemingly anything goes, it still tends to raise eyebrows. And yet, I think there is um, a pretty significant group uh, just amongst the population that probably still positively views the, or still views the church in a, in a positive fashion, in the sense that, as I mentioned, the, the the people of the church tend to be very involved. In, in civic life and, and community life and, uh, you know, well-known for certainly clean living. You know, if you if you say, well, my neighbor, you know how he is. He doesn't smoke, drink, or go with girls that do. <laughs> They'll probably say, oh, yeah, he's a Mormon. You know, there's that there's that sense of, of, of a high level of discipline and healthy, clean living lifestyle. And yet, 
below the surface of sort of the presentation that all is well, the families get along, divorce never happens, it's all, uh, you know, um, coming, everything's coming up roses, there is a side of Mormonism, and again, now to be distinct, I'm not talking here about the, 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 the cult end of the polygamy side of the extreme end of LDS, but rather sort of within the mainstream church, that there's still a side of Mormonism that is not really what it's cracked up to be. You know, there's an inordinate, inordinately large percentage or large uh, factor of Mormon women who are on antidepressants and are and or consider suicide because of the expectations that are put on them to live that kind of lifestyle. And of course, if you believe, as I did, that when I got married, that I was going to have as many children as my body could reasonably bear because there were spirits in heaven waiting to inhabit bodies and they needed Mormon bodies and so I was willing to do that. I didn't believe I was going to practice polygamy on earth but I did believe I would practice it in heaven when I became a goddess and my husband's other wives were goddesses and he was a god and we would be populating planets well you can imagine that 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 kind of expectation for eternity coupled with the fact that you really do want to put the best foot face forward uh, for your faith. You want your children to be, you know, dressed nice, and you uh, you want to be the, the hostess with the mostest and cook and clean and, you know, participate in church work. And it, it's really overwhelming for women. And I've spoken to many women who um, just suffered so silently not because the church was repressing them, but because of the expectations that the church and they put on them to, to um, model future godhood. And it's, it's quite a burden to, to carry. To yeah, it would seem to me, I mean, you're, you're describing a model that is very, in other terms, very works-based. And as we know from a biblical perspective, a, a works-based faith uh, never never turns out well. Uh, you know, our, our, our works are a result of our, uh, our salvation um, or a product of our salvation and not the other way around. And so I would imagine it must be pretty exhausting trying to live up to that standard and then also finding yourself in a religion that is... Um, pretty close-minded, and by that I mean, and I even say it on this program, hey, if I say something on the air that you think sounds like a lot of hooey, don't take my word for it. Go and check it out. Go talk to your pastor. Dive into the Word and see if it doesn't agree. And if the Word doesn't agree and proves me wrong, then please call me and tell me I'm an idiot and a liar. That kind of questioning or sort of, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, doubting Thomas trying of one's own faith, that's not encouraged within Mormonism at all, is it? Well, not only that, Craig, what you're aiming at and what I'm aiming at is to help our Christian brothers and sisters have compassion for these people that are overwhelmed with having to earn their salvation or in, in Mormon terminology to earn their exaltation because they believe salvation is guaranteed to everybody if you're born on earth but exaltation means where you end up in heaven and you have to earn that you're absolutely right and so you and i both want um, uh, your listeners to come away with the impression that these people that seem so formidable with this great you know this uh, and, and they're trying their hardest to do their best 
but there's there many of them are suffering because this is quite a burden that their their religious faith puts on them and um and you mentioned that they're being exclusive i don't think you use that word um from the point of view of a Mormon, I was very proud of that. I, I this uh, this close knit group was something I was proud of. And to be honest with you, Craig, I've been a member of the same congregation for fifty years now. Once I left Mormonism, same Christian con- congregation of people, and I love that we stick together too. So, you know, what we see as a disadvantage in, in others, we need to just make sure as, if we're going to turn the searchlight of criticism on. A group that we have a um, that we, when it shines back on us, we're not doing the same thing. Um, that's why I think people often ask, "Is Mormonism a cult?" And um, I just wanted to ask you, Craig, what, what do you think about that? Well, you know, as as I understand a cult, and there, there's a couple of degrees to which I, I would define it. First and foremost, when it comes down to the the most fundamental rudimentary rudimentary definition of what salvation is, uh, I I would suggest. Yes, because I do not see within Mormonism the the singular belief that the only way by which man may be may be forgiven of, forgiven of sin and regenerated and and relationship with God restored is singularly and only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And yet I understand that there's so much of Mormonism that is works based, which then I think would would in a sense qualify it as being a bloodless cult, meaning that it does not singularly turn on Christ's work on the cross and then when you add things like yeah, the, the, the sense of being, being a tight-knit community is not always a bad thing provided that you know it, it doesn't become an echo chamber and what I love about mm-hmm. evangelical Christianity is not only are questions encouraged I think that it, that, it, mm-hmm. that it really ought to be part of what we do hath God said let's check out and see what the word has to say Asking questions seems to be something that, at least from my understanding, is not always encouraged within the Mormon Church. I mean, I would suspect if you went to any of the twelve elders and said, "Okay, about these uh, about these plates of Moroni," um, and uh, so they came, they were discovered, they were translated, but you don't have them in the church library because God took them back up to heaven. Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, the one thing that's beautiful about Christianity is that we can demonstrate not only from the eyewitnesses accounts that we see in the harmony of the Gospels and throughout mm-hmm. Scripture, but there's also architecture and history that demonstrates that many of the things that we see and hear and read about within God's Word is, in fact, verifiable by extra-biblical sources, and that's not necessarily the case within Mormonism. So, from those two points, I would say, yeah, I would probably put, although maybe not in the same category as a, a cult, quote-unquote, like a Jonestown, Jim Jones-style cult, I would still have to say, and I would I would even say this to a, a, a Mormon friend, that I'm, I'm afraid that a lot of Mormonism does appear to be a cult. You know, I agree completely with you, and I don't know whether, uh, when we put this together, there are four characteristics of a pseudo-Christian cult. In other words, a cult that uses the terminology of Christianity, but um, is a a cult. And one is that it deifies man or mankind, and we talked about that when I told you that I believed I was going to become a goddess and my husband was going to become a god. 
we've already talked about and you brought up very aptly the different view of salvation, a works-based salvation. When you mentioned the, uh, the golden plates, what did the Book of Mormon intend to do? And it intended to make up for the lacks in the Bible. So the third characteristic of a cult is that it ostracizes scripture or replaces it or diminishes it. And the only thing we didn't talk about that's the fourth characteristic of God, and I think this is remarkable that we did this, you and I not just discussing this ahead of time, is we did not talk about how a God, the Father in, um, in Mormon theology, was a former man who lived on a different planet than this and became a God. Yeah. So the fourth characteristic of a cult, we, we actually just in talking about it, We've just been talking about what we know about Mormonism. We've already identified three of the four characteristics of a cult. And, you know, I find it fascinating because when we talk about man's sin nature, I mean, certainly the notion of wanting to to um, uh, transplant or supersede God's authority, I mean, that was hinted mm-hmm. at even within uh, the Garden of Eden when the serpent came and said, well, mm-hmm. hath God said? And, and the notion of man wanting to take on uh, God-like characteristics. I have to tell you, uh, as a believer of many years now, I find even the notion exhausting. I would have no interest. God says, I am the only Lord thy God, and you will have no other gods before me. And I don't even want to think about the notion of being competitive, uh, let alone being on the same par. I am quite content with God being God. And, and I think that notion of of becoming a deity or having, I mean, I, I may have traits in terms of, of being created in the image and likeness of God, but I am not God. And when we start to do that, we find ourselves, quite frankly, taking on the characteristics of another very prominent character in Scripture, and that is Satan himself, who wished to be God. And therefore, you look at that from a purely scriptural standpoint and say, you know, if Mormons insist that, you know, we, we all believe in the same God, it's just a little bit of a different approach. We've got a little bit more current revelation, you know, that it didn't end with the, the final pages being written of the the uh, the New Testament somewhere in the Middle East uh, 2,000 or 1,500 years ago, whatever the date might be. But instead, it was just, you know, less than 150, 200 years old written here just right over here in Utah. Boy, you got to look at that and say there seems to be something that's not quite computing. With me today is Dr. Latane Scott. She has a newly released and and retitled a book called Under the Banner of the Mormon Cold. And she draws from her own life experiences to help readers understand the current day fascination with Mormonism, particularly as it's capturing some attention um, with the current television series Under the Banner of Heaven, as well as helping us understand not only what Mormon teaches, how it differs from traditional traditional, mainline, fundamental, five pillars of the faith style of Christianity, and then ultimately, and perhaps most importantly, how we can reach our Mormon friends for Christ. We take a time out. We'll come back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I'm getting the sense that we should have booked an hour with our guest in this segment of the program because there's so much to unpack here. But that'll maybe give you a good reason to go out and order a copy of her newly released and retitled book, Under the Banner of the Mormon Code, where she draws from her own life experiences and offers insights to readers in terms of not just having a better understanding of some of the history of Mormonism, what it teaches, how it differs from mainline evangelical Christianity, but then, and of course, most importantly, uh, how we're able to share our faith and encouragement with 
are Mormon friends. And and toward that end, let, let's talk about that. We've kind of talked about some of the the challenges that that Mormons face in terms of you know the the the, the sort of the requirement of of lifestyle and good works for um, salvation. And and I would suspect then to some degree, uh, Mormons at some point in their their life experience must get a little bit tired and feel tremendously unfulfilled that they're working so hard and granted they've got something to look forward to but you know one of the joys uh, dr scott for me is that yes i've got heaven to look forward to but i also get lots of benefits down here and the relationship with god and the satisfaction of being able to have that communion with him is is absolutely uh, without without equal and and yet i would imagine for a mormon they don't share that experience and i wonder if that's a is that potentially a starting point when you wish to share your faith with a Mormon. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because when people ask me when Mormon missionaries come to their door, what should they do? You know, what should they know? Is there a magic bullet scripture you can quote to them and they'll go away scratching their heads and, you know, starting to wonder. And it's really much simpler than that, Craig. I tell people that when someone comes to your door and tells you that they uh, have the Mormon gospel, um, I suggest that you not invite them in unless you're really, really prepared. And I believe your home is a sacred place not to bring someone in error into. But here's what I tell people to do. You can open the door and say, you know... Uh, I appreciate your coming, but you know what? I am so satisfied in my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and I have such a happy relationship with my uh, church family, and even though I have circumstances in my life that are hard, I have eternal joy and eternal hope, and I'm content with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you why that would be so effective. When I was a Mormon, I believed that Christians were secretly unhappy and they needed Mormonism to be happy. And that they were all, and of course that was always solidified when people slammed the doors in the faces of Mormon missionaries, you know. Here are these sour-faced people that, you know, say, I don't want to hear you, and they shut the door. If, I think if I had, when I was Mormon, heard Christians saying, my life with, with the Lord Jesus Christ is so satisfying that I don't need what you're offering me. I tell you what, these 18, 19-year-old boys that are homesick, they're away from their homes, they're stuck with each other, you know, day and night, literally. If they heard that from, let's say, every other door that they knocked on in a neighborhood of a Christian giving them a big smile and saying, you know what? I, don't, I just don't need that. I, I have so much joy in, in my life, so much satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not anything you could give me that I don't already have. Those young men would go back and start thinking, what do they know that we don't know? Mm. Let me ask you this. From, from a Mormon perspective, um, when, when I think of God, certainly I, I acknowledge and recognize that he is holy and righteous and that uh, he's a jealous God. 
He wants no other gods before him, that he expects me to live up to a certain standard. The same token, that same God recognizes that in my fallen sin nature, we've proven to be wholly incapable of that. And therefore, the reason why he sent his son to pay the price on my behalf. But I I don't see God as someone that is standing in heaven with a bat ready to bash me over the head at the first wrong move. Rather, I see a God that, yes, is holy and righteous, but is also loving, long-suffering, tender, compassionate, caring, always present, um, always responding, even though the answer sometimes to prayer may be no, but yet God is, is engaging and is there. Is that kind of perspective shared by Mormons, or is he the, the big bo- boogeyman up in the sky ready to bop you over the head? Honestly, I never had that impression, um, Craig. In fact, kind of to the opposite, since I believed that God the Father was a former man who had lived on another planet, and that his wife, or wife's heavenly mother, had gone through the same kind of process I had gone through in an earthly life, I believed that they would be more sympathetic my struggles because they had been through them themselves. Mm. And of course that completely hijacks and shanghai's the role of Jesus Christ of as someone who came to earth to share in our in our, in our uh, sufferings. And, you know, he suffered in all points just as we are. And if, if you don't mind me inserting this right now, because the, those four characteristics I told you uh, about a cult are so significant in evaluating any group like Mormonism. I would love to bless your listeners with a free ebook on the characteristics of a cult. All they have to do is go to latane.com forward slash cults and I'll send them a free ebook that gives the characteristics of, of a cult. You can take those and look at any group around you to see if they, uh, if they follow these four characteristics. And to come back to what you're saying, this view of a formerly human God, the Father, diminishes him. See, the comfort I have now, Craig, in the true and living God of, of the uh, of the uh, of the Bible is that He doesn't ever change. Mormons believe God is eternally progressing; that, that He's going to be wiser tomorrow than He was today. And the problem with that, of course, is that. He's not as wise as he uh, he wasn't as wise yesterday as he is today. Mm. That once you realize that, it it makes him a lesser god because he's just one of us. <laughs> yeah, and I'm so delighted that the God I serve is all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, uh, omniscient, omnipresent, and is all-knowing. And I don't have to worry about God learning something new tomorrow. He knows it all, and I can rely upon that in my own life. And, you know, at the end, and I think this is a good point to conclude our conversation on, Dr. Scott, Mormonism, like like many of the cults, if you, if you scrutinize it close enough, you begin to realize that they're Attributes that are Christianity-like, that are Bible-ish, but in the end are, in fact, a cheap imitation of the real deal. Now, how can you gain a better understanding in knowing the difference? Well, uh, Dr. Scott, very gracious in offering a free ebook called What is a Cult? And all you need to do to get your own copy is to go to 
latane.com forward slash cults. And I'll spell that for you. It's L-A-T-A-Y-N-E, latane.com forward slash cults. And you can get your own free copy of the ebook What is a Cult? Dr. Scott, we're going to have to have you back on when we've got more time to spend together because there's so much on this subject matter that I believe is worthwhile talking about and so many of the lessons that are certainly specific to Mormonism, but in the broader sense can be applied across the board for any of us, no matter who you might run into as you share your faith with others, uh, gaining a better understanding of, um, of who Christ is, of course, and your own relationship with God is the first key to understanding more about the cults and sharing your faith. Information again on the web at Latane, L-A-T-A-Y-N-E dot com. And for your free ebook called What is a Cult? Simply go to latane.com forward slash cults. Dr. Latane Scott, thank you so much for spending some time with us. The book, Under the Banner of the Mormon Code. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Turning an important corner in our conversation, you know, it was clear back in 1965 when the Roman Catholic Church officially rejected the idea that Jewish people were responsible in any way for the death of Jesus. Pope Benedict XVI has decided to reiterate the point in a new book, Jesus of Nazareth, Part 2. Many have hailed the move as a groundbreaking step in relations between people of Jewish and Roman Catholic faith, and in fact, for all of Christendom, for that matter. The Pope's announcement comes after painstaking analysis of the Gospel of John and Matthew, as well as texts that cover the hours that preceded Jesus' death. Of course, what's amazing about this story is, when you get down to the core, as to the reason, from a prophetic standpoint, as to why Christ came on earth, and why eventually he was uh, executed on the cross and then rose day again on the third day in fulfillment of scripture is simply because of sin. If you want to look at who was responsible, literally, for nailing Jesus to the cross, take a look there in the rearview mirror if you're driving, or when you get home, look at the mirror. It is you and me. It's everyone. It's mankind. It is our sin uh, that caused Christ to be nailed to the cross, that ultimate sacrifice, uh, so that for all mankind, for all time, we might have, by this means, uh, the ability to be reconciled unto the Father. With that amazing message, the, the opportunity before us, as always, to share our faith of Messiah with our Jewish friends. And toward that end, a new book out entitled, A Rabbi Looks at Jesus of Nazareth. We're joined by the president and CEO of Jewish Voice Ministries International, and of course, the television program, Jewish Voice with Jonathan Burnus, broadcast throughout the United States, including here in the San Francisco Bay Area on cable TV. And uh, Rabbi, welcome to the program, and shalom. Shalom to you, Craig. Thanks for having me on today, and love the way you stated that. I, I couldn't agree more. Is that an important step, do you think? I mean, in terms of just, you know, I, I think as Christians, we certainly need to understand who is responsible for Jesus' death. All of us understand, ultimately, it is sin that caused him to be sacrificed on the cross. But then, too, do you see this, uh, Rabbi, as an opportunity to really, in a significant fashion, reach out to uh, our Jewish friends and be able to, once again, share our faith? Absolutely, Craig. You have to understand that this that this uh, erroneous blame uh, 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 that was cast upon the Jews for killing Jesus, which is absolutely unscriptural, has been the cause uh, or, or has resulted in a 2,000-year legacy of hatred, of anti-Semitism, of atrocities 
committed in the name of Christ and Christianity against the Jewish people. It's the, the accusation against the Jews for killing the Son of God, for committing deicide, and then the idea that God has irrevocably rejected the Jewish people, and they're now under his judgment, that has been responsible for the Crusades, the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, uh, the uh, pogroms of Russia, and even the Holocaust in, in recent times. And we have to overcome that legacy as true believers in sharing the truth uh, with the Jewish people, the truth of God's Word, and that is that he, that Jesus laid down his life for us as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world by dying for us and paying the price for your sin and my sin. And that is the gospel message. Spend a moment, if you would, to put all of this in, in perspective for our listeners, uh, a bit about your own story. I'm assuming raised in the, the traditional Orthodox Jewish family? I wasn't raised in an Orthodox Jewish home. Uh, my parents were, uh, my father was brought up Orthodox, but I was raised in a, a traditional Jewish home. Uh, went to synagogue uh, very often on Shabbat, uh, learned uh, Hebrew uh, at Hebrew school from the time that I was uh, a young teenager uh, in preparation, probably started at about age 10 in preparation for my bar mitzvah at age 13, where um, I read from the Torah as a rite of passage for Jewish males. So maybe uh, not the traditional Orthodox family, but certainly very engaged in your faith. I mean, this is a part of, of, of your day-to-day -day life. Yes, this was, while the other kids were going to... Uh, football practice or baseball or just getting to play outside, I was being shipped off to uh, Hebrew school twice a week, <laughs> and then on Sunday, uh, mandatory religious study at the temple, and I was raised with a very, very um, strong sense of identity. I was born Jewish. I was taught that I would die a Jew. I learned about the history of our people, how God had spoken to Abraham and Moses in times of old, and that we were the chosen people, although I, it wasn't uh, clearly um, communicated to me what we were chosen for, what that meant. One teacher told me we were chosen to be persecuted, so I, I wasn't too thrilled about that. But there was a very strong sense of identity uh, and, and being part of... Uh, are responsible for continuation of our people, um, which, which is, is still, I think, very, very strongly in the minds of Jewish people that the survival of the Jewish people is paramount. Even Jews who don't believe in God or are agnostic believe in the importance of preserving their Jewish identity and heritage. And I was raised with that very, very strong uh, sense of purpose as a Jew. Let's pause for a moment. When we come back, I want to pick up the story as to how then, with that strong sense of, of pride and, 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 the, and the goal toward preservation of your Jewish faith, your Jewish heritage, that you make the transition into coming to accept Jesus that we know, Yeshua, as Messiah. Our conversation today with Rabbi Jonathan Burnus, a look at A Rabbi Looks at Jesus of Nazareth. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Our visit with Rabbi Jonathan Burnus. He, by the way, is also the president and CEO of Jewish Voice Ministries International and um, the host of the weekly television program Jewish Voice with Jonathan Burnus. We're talking about not just his new book, A Rabbi Looks at Jesus of Nazareth, but also his, his own tale, um, his own story of coming to the acceptance of Messiah. You know, it's interesting that you, you recount some of the events that have gone on in the world down through the millennia. Um, uh, Rabbi Bernice, that have given Jewish people great cause not to accept Jesus as Messiah. But in your case, um, what was it that that prompted you, uh, no doubt, to at least begin researching some of the claims? And I would suspect at some point, beginning to see parallels between the story of this man of Nazareth named Jesus and what we see prophetically uh, throughout Scripture of his coming. Craig, it was it was really a um, a process that took a number of years, uh, and that process began uh, as a, a teenager uh, in high school, uh, and my interaction with an, an assistant wrestling coach who was a born again Christian and leader in a in a group called Young Life, and he really made an impact on me because I saw in him. Uh, things that I uh, had really valued and and know that I didn't have. For example, he had a sense of purpose. I always uh, believed that there must be something uh, greater in this life, something more than meets the eye. And and he had a real sense of purpose, of destiny, and that was very attractive for me. He always seemed to be in a good mood and didn't need to uh, drink and and uh, and and party as um, was, was so typical of the people that, that around me and the era that I grew up in. And so I went to some Young Life meetings that he invited me to and heard these stories of this Jesus. And I was intrigued with the person of Jesus uh, back then, uh, this man who could walk on water and heal the sick and even raise the dead. Uh, and, and so I found the person of Jesus was attractive. But I have to say this, that the... the the um, people that shared the gospel with me back then, uh, and there were numerous people, including this wrestling co- coach, uh, students that were attending the Young Life meetings that had an encounter with God, other Young Life leaders. Uh, it was at that point when they tried to convert me, as I saw it, that I let them know immediately that I was Jewish. And what's very sad, Craig, is that in every case, when I said that I was Jewish, I always got an apology. They always apologized to me. And what they were, in effect, doing was reinforcing my erroneous view that Jesus was not an option for me as a Jew. Uh, and that's sad, and that's one of the reasons I wrote this book. And, you know, I'm curious, too, because I think a lot of us uh, that, that perhaps don't know much about or never studied or, or, or don't have any close Jewish friends don't understand the, the connection between the culture, the history, the identity at so many levels, and this notion that somehow you're going to betray, uh, you know, your, your roots by, by, you know, giving up your Judaism to become... <gasps> One of those Christians. Absolutely. And I was raised with this mentality, what I call an us and them mentality, that we were Jews and anyone who wasn't a Jew was a Christian or a or a Gentile. We didn't make any distinction between the two. We didn't distinguish between Catholicism or, or, or uh, Protestant uh, uh, views. 
we had our, our rabbis, uh, our scriptures, the Old Testament, what Christians called the Old Testament, our holidays, and Christians had uh, their leaders, their scriptures, uh, their God, in fact. Uh, our God was the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I was taught that the God of Christianity was Jesus Christ, who I thought was the son of, of Mr. and Mrs. Christ, who somehow <laughs> would become God. And this, these misconceptions are very, very typical of Jewish people, particularly here in America. And so this, this, this was my upbringing, my heritage. And I don't think Christians understand that, that uh, Jewish people um, understand Christianity to be a distinctly different religion, blaming us, of course, for killing their God. And uh, it was a complete shock for me to read the New Testament and discover that this wasn't the book of Christ about Christianity, but this, in fact, was about a Jewish man raised in Israel, not in Rome, uh, and that all of his first disciples were all Jews who never converted to Christianity but discovered that this was the promised Messiah. I, I'm curious toward that end, Rabbi. At what point does the light go on for you? You're thinking, well, surely Jesus Christ must be a Christian, and you come to find out, oh, wait a minute, he's Jewish. I mean, I, I, clearly, as you read through uh, much of, of Scripture, uh, he, his identity comes out very strongly. W when this notion began to dawn on you, what was your initial reaction? Were you shocked? Well, let me back up a little because I am jumping the gun a little bit. So after this this Young Life encounter, which lasted a year, a year and a half, and during that time I heard the gospel quite often and, and was, was had the privilege of participating in a number of, of uh, actual Young Life camps. So it was a very meaningful experience for me, very positive. But I moved on, uh, went on to college, and like most of the uh, young people my age, I got involved in drugs and was just searching for, for uh, meaning in life. Uh, the Bible says that we Jews have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, and that, that means we're searching in all the wrong places, which was my story. Uh, got involved in Hare Krishna for a while and different cults and so on, and it was through the, the transformed life of a, of a friend who was uh, a fellow drug user, uh, who really got deeply involved in drugs, and then one day, uh, when I saw her off campus, I knew that something had changed. She looked uh, clean, healthy, she was smiling, and I asked her what happened to her, and she explained to me that Jesus had uh, changed her life, that she had become born again, and uh, that she was completely delivered of drugs, and I found that very intriguing. But of course, my response was, I think, very typical of, of, of many today, uh, that's wonderful for you, but it's not for me. But you know what, Craig? She didn't give up on me. She got her friends praying for me. She uh, called me just about every day asking me about why I was here on this earth and what was going to happen to me after I die. And I'll tell you, it was very intriguing. And although in my mind I, I didn't want to believe what she believed, uh, I didn't want to answer those phone calls, I found myself drawn to these conversations with her. And that finally uh, um, ended in, in attending a Bible study that she invited me to, that I originally said no to, and found myself driving to in the rain on the back of my motorcycle. I really believe that when you have people praying for you, uh, something happens. It, it, it changes uh, things. I like to say it this way, uh, that uh, 
God respects free will, but he stacks the deck. But people are frank. And it was at that Bible study that uh, I prayed a prayer uh, after the study with the Bible study leader. And then, to tell you the truth, I went home and tried to forget the whole thing, because I realized then uh, sanity took a hold of me, and although it seemed the right thing to do at the moment, as I reflected on it, I realized I'm Jewish, I'm enjoying my life, this isn't for me. But within days, Craig, I had this newfound desire uh, to read the Bible, and not just the Bible, but the New Testament. And it was then that uh, I, I drove all the way back to Rochester, about 100 miles from where I was uh, going to college at the University of Buffalo, and found a Bible that this assistant wrestling coach had given me probably four years earlier and said, someday you may want this. Let's and pause right there if we can, um, uh, Rabbi, and we'll pick up the story right after a brief time out. If you've just joined us, mid-conversation with Rabbi Jonathan Burnus, a look at a rabbi looks at Jesus of Nazareth. We'll get to more of the conversation after this edition of Lifeline continues after this. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 